This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to point out that what some of you may have already noticed, the astute observers, as it were, that last week there actually was no episode. I did not release this episode immediately following the preceding one. The reason for that, unfortunately, life got in the way. As you know, we're all busy. Occasionally, a confluence of things comes together and conspires to prevent me from being able to do this. Try as I might, I made it almost three full years without missing a single week. Last week, my streak failed. Have no fear. Those of you that reached out, I appreciate it. But Quotations is not going anywhere. I'm still going to be delivering you content, and I hope to not repeat the abrupt gap that occurred in your podcast feed last week again. So, my apologies. Let's move forward. Here's today's quote. Quote, The windiest militant trash, important person shout, is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijinsky wrote about Diaglev is true of the normal heart. For the error bred and bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. From the conservative dark into the ethical life, the dense commuters come, repeating their morning vow, I will be true to the wife, I will concentrate more on my work. And helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? All I have is a voice, to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain, of the sensual man in the street and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizens or the police. We must love one another or die. Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies. Yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, comprised like them, of arrows and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. End quote. Now, this is the second half of our explication on W.H. Auden's September 1st, 1939. If you haven't yet listened to the first episode, I recommend you do so before proceeding with this one, as I won't spend a lot of time on the first half of the poem, and it really does help to understand how we got to where we are now. So if you need to go, now is a good time. If you're still here, thank you. If you've just come back, welcome back. Now recall that last week we set the stage for this poem, which is about Hitler's Nazi invasion of Poland on this date near the end of the 1930s. And it was doubtlessly a frightening time to be alive, and Auden captures that well through his speaker, whom we believe to be Auden himself, sitting at a bar as he hears the news. Again, maybe not drinking, but perhaps reading a newspaper. And Auden was a British-born poet living in the United States at the outbreak of World War II, which was marked by the invasion for which this poem was written. And as a recap, some things remain the same. The speaker here, we believe again, is Auden himself. The event being dramatized is the Nazi invasion of Poland at Hitler's command. And thus far in the poem, the speaker has elaborated primarily on how he speculates we got here. Willful ignorance, a commitment to the status quo, and an unwillingness to be uncomfortable have all led us to this fateful day where the first of literally millions of people would die over the next six years of fighting. 
So let us jump in now into the second half of the poem. And we began today with the sixth of nine stanzas, where the speaker compares all of us to the, quote, windiest militants and, quote, important persons, saying we all have the same desires. And he makes reference to Nijinsky and Diaghilev, two names with which I was not at all familiar prior to researching for this episode. So for context, Nijinsky was a Russian ballet dancer at the beginning of the 20th century who fell into and subsequently out of love with Sergei Diaghilev as a result of his own mental breakdown. Nijinsky's, that is. And Nijinsky went on to write in his diary later, while in a mental institution, that, quote, some politicians are hypocrites like Diaghilev, who does not want universal love, but to be loved alone, end quote. And this, specifically, is what the speaker is saying is true of all of us, at least to some degree. That we want to be loved, but don't necessarily care if others receive the same. And this tracks with the world as we know it, which is not wholly different from the world of the 1930s. It's not even 100 years hence. The world does not change that much in that time. Consider the homeless person you drive past on a daily basis. More or less lovable and worthy than you? It's a good question. What about the person who cleans your office or your home or your coffee shop? Going further, what about a person with whom you disagree politically? Financially, maybe an ex-lover or a, quote, bad person? Do they deserve love? Do you desire them to be loved the way that you desire to be loved? See, it's not so simple. Next, the speaker takes a, what I'll call a semi-nihilistic tone, understandable given the news received on this day. The speaker talks of the common person and the politician, quote, in charge, engaged mindlessly in the repetitive and pointless attempt to remain true to vows, right? Not just to marriage vows, but to life in general and to make a difference in some way. The speaker's reference to a compulsory game really struck a chord with me, because who hasn't felt this way? Who hasn't felt like a day or a week or a month or a quarter or more hasn't slipped by without doing anything noteworthy? Almost as if that time passed only in our subconscious and we wasted precious time, just repeating what we've always done. I know I've felt that way. You probably have too. The deaf and the dumb that the speaker references at the end of that paragraph, saying, who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? Those individuals are us. You and I, the common person. The person in charge, the person being led. We are the deaf and the dumb. We don't hear. We don't speak. Who can reach us? In the next stanza, the speaker does something that I like, that rather than just observing and presenting a problem... The speaker brings a solution, sort sort of. The speaker acknowledges that we do not exist alone, right? The state is a construct, and that we should not rely upon it for moral authority or civil direction, lest it lead us astray. Take, for example, Nazi Germany at the time. The state, co-opted by Hitler and his regime, was leading the nation down a path of mass genocide. Just beginning as this poem is written. However, we know how the story plays out. And what the speaker is arguing against here is, don't trust the state. Not in the trust nothing that the state does, but don't rely upon the state for moral authority, or necessarily, absolutely, for civil direction. Sometimes the state 
and people in charge get it wrong. Not as often as we would like to believe, not as often as the news would like you to believe nowadays. But often, the potential for the evils that are swirling about this day lies just below the surface. And the speaker goes on to say, and this is the solution part of this paragraph, that the only true cures for these evils are our voices and our love. And of course, that sounds cheesy and romantic, and it is to a certain degree. But consider that the most iconic line of this poem is the next one, where the speaker says, we must love one another or die. And we'll put this to the same test as other assertions that we've tested on this podcast. Does it stand up to logic? Because, you see, what the speaker is attempting to convey here is that love for one another would never have allowed for the hate-fueled attempt to expunge an entire people group, really multiple people groups, from the earth. Now, does that make sense? If you truly love your fellow man, if your fellow man truly loves you, is there room for something like this? And I would argue that there's not. And I think that's what the speaker would argue as well, is that it is the spark of less-than-human treatment of others dies without oxygen in a world where people love one another. And that the death that the speaker references is also not individual death, but the death of civil society, the world as we know it. What the speaker is saying is that love reinforces, hatred destroys. So when he says we must love one another or die, he's not talking about individual to individual. Certainly individual love persisted throughout these atrocities. One might even argue that Hitler loved, right? And that certainly his Nazi compatriots had people that they considered to have loved at the individual level. But holistically, as a society, you have a group of people, the Nazi Germans, who hate, therefore the absence of love, Jewish people and various other people as well. But that's the primary group here that's being targeted. And that's what the speaker is saying. We, the collective society, groups of society, must love one another or society will die. And that's what's at stake here at the beginning of World War II, the end of the 1930s. On the precipice of six years of bloodshed and death and needless suffering. All fueled by hatred. And the final stanza of the poem is interesting. The speaker begins by describing us as defenseless against the night. From that line, we might think that the poem is about to end with a dark, foreboding tone, which is probably what the speaker actually felt at the time. Likely the speaker at this time knows that this is the beginning of something terrible, and something that's not going away overnight. And this ultimately turns out not to be the case. Not the dark part, because it does continue in darkness for quite some time. But because the speaker then references points of light, emanating from the just, I'm making quotation marks here, and the just in the poem is actually capitalized in its original form to imply importance, and I think, humanity, right? We capitalize the first names of people. The just, in this case, refers to just people. And that light-dark analogy is common and familiar. Light driving out darkness, darkness equated with dead and evil, etc., this is done deliberately. The speaker knows this. The speaker closes with an allusion to a flame. And that's yet another source of light 
pushing back against the darkness. So that even in the midst of darkness and evil and despair, the poem and the speaker's words end in hope. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. Think, this is September 1st, 1939, the beginning of World War II. It's hard for us to comprehend what a trying and difficult time that was in the world because we haven't seen anything quite like it since. Vietnam wasn't quite the same. Desert Storm, Iraq, Afghanistan, not the same. Not world wars. The world is about to descend into a time of uncertainty. A time where the maps will be redrawn and millions of people will die. And we haven't had anything quite like that since then. And despite all of that, the speaker still finds a way to be positive at the end of this poem. And that's impressive, and something we can learn from. So as usual, I like to kind of think aloud about what we might do with what we've heard over the last two episodes, and I think the caution here is not to just mindlessly go through our lives, meandering day to day without actively engaging in thinking and pursuing true goodness, because if we fall victim to our own laziness, as the speaker implies early in the poem, the result may be another September 1st, 1939. Perhaps even worse than the one described in this poem. So we must stay vigilant. And I hope that you enjoyed this poem as much as I did. It's certainly the longest and most challenging that I've attempted to examine. So I'm curious, based on your assessment, did I miss anything? Did something stand out to you that I completely overlooked, or did I misinterpret something or perhaps provide an insight that maybe you didn't see yourself? If so, reach out and let me know. I'd love to hear from you on social media or via email. And stay with me through the outro to get all of those contact methods. But again, I'd love to hear from you on this and any other episode. So reach out. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.